Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, a son is born. We know that earlier the Pharaoh, or king of Egypt, was favorable to the children of Israel for Joseph's sake, because he saved the whole known world during a seven-year famine. But now, suspicious of the number of Israelites living in Egypt, he is set out to control and use them. He subjugated them under taskmasters, made their lives bitter with hard labor in construction and field work, and still they multiplied. He ordered Hebrew midwives to kill every Hebrew newborn male, but they refused to do so because they feared God more than Pharaoh. Finally, he instituted a national policy of social engineering and genocide, ordering all his people to watch for the birth of any Hebrew boys and when they were born, to throw them into the Nile to die. It was into such a situation that Moses was born. We may be so familiar with the story that we lose the sense of horror over such an edict. We need to imagine what it would have been like to live in such times as a Hebrew. Life was already difficult because of slavery. Now the anti-Semitism had escalated to legislated murder. We are told that into the family line of Levi, one of Jacob's sons by Leah, a man and woman had a son. At this point their names aren't given. We only learn later that they are Amram and Jochebed. She was his aunt. Those things were not forbidden yet. They already had a daughter named Miriam and a son named Aaron, who was three years older than Moses. We don't know exactly how much older Miriam was than her brothers, but she was old enough to be sent to keep an eye on baby Moses on his trip down the Nile and to suggest a nursemaid for him. They would have heard about this edict, possibly while she was pregnant, or she may not have been pregnant yet, but in those days there was no contraception. I admire her. She was such an extraordinary character. She must have prayed that the child she was carrying would be a girl, so they'd be safe. What a worrisome pregnancy that must have been. There were no ultrasounds. If there had been, the state would probably have forced abortions, as happens in China today with the one-child policy. But then she gave birth to a boy. No name is given, possibly because they didn't know if he'd survive, but he would later be called Moses. This signified hope as they wondered with each baby boy born if he would be the promised deliverer. This is another echo of the book of Genesis, reminding us of the birth of Sesh, Seth and Enosh and Noah. We're told she recognized something special about him, more than most mothers who feel their baby is the most beautiful child ever born. She managed to hide him for three months, no doubt amazed that the baby cried so little which kept him safe from the authorities. But the day came when she could no longer hide him. The reason for this is not given. Had they been discovered by neighbors who were getting ready to turn them into the authorities? Hebrews 11.23 praises the faith of Moses' parents. It says, By faith Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born, because they saw he was no ordinary child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. They understood the value of life. Then she made an ark of bulrushes and sealed it with tar and pitch inside and out to waterproof it. Archaeological evidence from the time showed that infants who died were often buried in such reed baskets.
Did it signify that she was prepared to accept him as dead, or that she was devising a ruse to fool her neighbors and the authorities that her son had died, and so she was placing him in the Nile? She had to release her precious baby boy into the hands of God, trusting that since he had brought her son into the world at such a time, and had kept him safe so far, he would continue to do so. This ark, sealed inside and out with tar and pitch, would be another reminder of the book of Genesis and the global flood of Noah's day. He also built an ark, with no rudder or steering wheel, but directed by God, sealed inside and out with pitch, and it saved God's people from the judgment that killed the rest of the world. Perhaps he would do it again? One can only imagine how difficult it must have been to put her son in it and place it in the reeds. It doesn't say she placed it floating down the Nile, as he would be in danger of crocodiles. Rather, she placed it in the shelter of the reeds and left her young daughter, Miriam, to watch and see what would happen to the child, as she could not bear to see it for herself. This is very much in line with what a distraught mother would do in such circumstances. Verses 5-10 through 10, Rescued from death and adopted At the exact right time, this child who had cried so little now cried for his life, and this cry was heard by none other than the daughter of Pharaoh, who just happened to be at that part of the Nile to bathe. It is suggested this was Hatshepsut. She sees the ark and hears the baby crying. She sends her maids in after it and takes a closer look. She recognized him as a Hebrew baby, either because he was circumcised or because he was in the Nile. Like Jochebed, Pharaoh's daughter recognized something special about him. Enter Miriam, who probably commented that the child was no doubt hungry, and she happened to know a woman who had lost her baby and was able and willing to nurse a child. Pharaoh's daughter probably saw the truth of it, but agreed to the arrangement nonetheless. Hearing and seeing this baby and understanding the circumstances that put him there, she had compassion on him and decided to raise him as her own child. She was obviously a strong character to be determined to be a single mother. So we see God's concern for the heart of a mother in the midst of a national crisis and the unique circumstances of providing a deliverer. She got her son back, as if from the dead, until he was weaned, which would have been two or three years, and she was paid for the privilege of caring for him. Hebrews 11.35 says women received back their dead, raised to life again. Although this refers to literal resurrections, like during the time of Elijah and Elisha, she received her son back figuratively, for she had released him to the Nile into God's hands, and he was returned to her. No doubt the palace sent great gifts to provide for the son of Pharaoh's daughter, whom she named Moses, which meant drawn out because she had drawn him from the water. Only Pharaoh's own daughter had the authority to override his orders, and Moses was raised in the midst of the enemy, Pharaoh, in spite of his edict. We also don't know if this event ended the genocidal plan altogether. Pastor Joel Fick calls these redemptive ironies. The Nile, seen as a source of life to the Egyptians, was now a place of death. But out of that place of death, for countless Hebrew boys, God saves one boy, and this boy would be nurtured and taught 
and protected in the very palace of the one who thought he could thwart God's plan and purpose and control his people. God's purpose to send a deliverer would not only proceed, but it would be done in the most unlikely way. Pharaoh wouldn't have allowed his daughter to adopt a Hebrew boy and raise him if he had known that that boy would grow up to lead his slave population out of Egypt. Like the crucifixion of Christ, Paul says they wouldn't have done it if they had known it would be their undoing. In 1 Corinthians 2, 7, 8, he says, No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The first martyr, Stephen, summarizes this in his final defense. At that time Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. This would have given Moses incredible privileges, as the education he received in Egypt would have been quite comprehensive, being tutored in reading and writing of hieroglyphs, rhetoric, speech, recitation, morality, astronomy, science, geography, mathematics, geometry, foreign languages, ethics, sports like archery and horseback riding, music, arts, and diplomacy. This kind of education for pharaohs would prepare him to build a kingdom, to legislate, and to record events. Stephen says, Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. This literate man would be used by God to write the first five books of the Bible. In scripture, when we are told about unique birth circumstances, we can guess that this person will be significant. Isaac, born to elderly parents, or Jacob, born while grabbing his brother's heel. So when we hear how Moses survived when hundreds or even thousands of baby boys didn't, we need to watch how his life will unfold. Verses 11 to 15, Moses the Defender. His early years in the palace are passed over, much like the childhood of Jesus except for his birth and one incident when he was 12. We're only told that Moses had grown up. Stephen tells, Moses, tells us Moses was 40 years old when he fled to Midian. His life is divided into three main sections of 40 years, 40 in Egypt, 40 in Midian, and 40 more till his death at the age of 120. In spite of movies to the contrary, Moses seems to have known all along that he was a Hebrew because we're told he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. Stephen says the same thing. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. While there, he witnessed an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Hebrews 11, the Hall of Faith, mentions this attitude of Moses as commendable. By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt 
because he was looking ahead to his reward. We don't know how he was instilled with such a sense of his identity, whether Pharaoh's daughter made it plain since he was young, or he had ongoing contact with his birth mother, or whether he searched his people out. Looking this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The way it is depicted here, it sounds like premeditated murder and a cover-up. But Stephen describes Moses' motives and paints him as a deliverer. In Acts 7.24 he says, He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. This shows us he seemed to understand he had been spared from death and placed where he was in a position of power to help the Hebrews, but he was not accepted by them at this time. Acts 7.25 says, Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. He thought the incident was not common knowledge, but the next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. Again, Stephen tells about this incident, and instead of condemning his behavior, he paints Moses as a mediator, attempting to reconcile those at enmity with one another, but he was rejected. The next day he looks for more injustice. The next day Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers, why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? So it wasn't a problem that this matter was known by just the Hebrews, but news got back to the palace. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. It didn't matter that he was his adopted grandson. He now turns on him. So Moses fled for his life and went to live in Midian. The Midianites were descendants of Abraham and Keturah, his second wife after Sarah's death. They settled on the eastern shore of the Gulf of Aqaba. This was quite a distance for Moses to travel, but he wanted to be sure Pharaoh wouldn't find him. His parents were likely dead by this time. When he gets there, he sits down by a well. This seems to be just a random statement, but it would again remind the reader about the book of Genesis and how both Isaac's servants, Eleazar and Jacob, found wives, Rebekah and Rachel, at a well. Now Moses would as well. Verses 16 through 22. Moses marries in Midian. We're told that Moses happened to arrive at a place where there was a priest of Midian named Ruel, also known as Jethro. He may have been a worshipper of the true God. He also happened to have seven marriageable daughters. They were shepherdesses, as was Rachel. They happened to arrive at the moment to draw water from this well to fill the troughs to water their father's flock. But these women were treated harshly by the male shepherds of the area, who came along and drove them away, so they could water their own sheep first. But, like Jacob... Moses saved the day. He delivered them. 
we're told, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. This harassment that hindered them from their task must have been a regular occurrence, because when they returned to their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. For all they knew, he was an Egyptian and not a Hebrew. He was dressed as an Egyptian and clean-shaven as ancient Egyptians were. They saw him as both their hero for rescuing them and as their provider for watering their sheep. And they soon learned he wasn't really an Egyptian. Their father hears this amazing story and looks around, wondering why this person isn't with them, being rewarded for his kindness. And uh, where is he? Ruel asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. This would be another incident to remind the reader of the hospitality given to Isaac's servants and to Jacob. Moses is content to stay here in hiding, no longer feeling any urge to return to Egypt and rescue the Hebrews. Instead, he begins phase two of his life and marries one of Jethro's daughters, Zipporah. They have a son, and Moses names him Gershom, which means stranger or sojourner. This means he felt like a temporary resident there. He says the reason for naming him this is, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. He was a stranger in Egypt, and now he is a stranger in Midian. He doesn't really belong anywhere. Like the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he admitted he was just passing through. Hebrews 11.13 says, All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. This naming of his son would remind the reader of Joseph, who named his first son Manasseh, which meant forgetful, because finding some happiness in Egypt made him forget the early hardship with his family. Moses and Zipporah would later have another son named Eleazar. Stephen says when Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. The first injustice against the Hebrew slave led to Moses moving to Midian. The second injustice, the mistreatment of Zipporah and her sisters, led to him finding a wife. This chapter covers the first 40 years of Moses' life. God could have used him when he was young and strong and idealistic in a position of power, but that is not his way. If he had done it then, Moses would have been seen as the hero of the story rather than God. By the time he calls him at the age of 80, he is no longer idealistic or passionate about injustice, but has to be cajoled and almost threatened into obedience. It seems God wanted to humble him and teach him to lead sheep before he could lead people. Verses 23 to 25, a cry for help. During this 40-year period, the particular pharaoh who wanted Moses killed died. He could have returned, but didn't. He had a new life, with not a second thought about his old life in Egypt. But the ongoing slavery was still harsh, and the people groaned because of it, and finally cried out to God. We're not told they did this in all the earlier years. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, 
and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. This resulted in a response from God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Again, when we're told God remembers, it doesn't mean he had forgotten, but that he would now act on his promise. In fact, God's protection of Moses showed he hadn't forgotten his people. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. This shows us his disposition toward them. These are anthropomorphisms, or attempts at describing God in human terms. He doesn't have ears to hear with or eyes to look on them, but we are told these concepts in this way so we'd understand an infinite God. Scarlet Threads So what scarlet threads or links to Jesus Christ or the Gospel message do we find in this chapter? Both Moses and Jesus had unique births. Both their mothers showed great courage due to their crisis pregnancies. Both were born after 400 years of silence. Both were born when people needed a deliverer from oppression by a foreign power. Both were saved from death during a decree from a powerful, wicked ruler. Moses died figuratively, was buried in the Nile, and was raised to life again, by Pharaoh's daughter and given back to his mother. Jesus really died, was buried, and was raised to life again by God. Pharaoh, who represented Satan, tried to keep God's people from fulfilling his plan of multiplying, but ended up bringing the deliverer in his palace, saving him to eventually be the savior of his people. Satan, throughout scripture, tried to destroy the offspring of the woman, or believers, so that the Deliverer could not come, and when Jesus came, he tried to tempt him and keep him from going to the cross. Yet when he thought he had triumphed by crucifying Jesus, it was his own downfall, and Jesus, through the de that defeat, became the Savior of his people. Both had obscure formative years while they were taught. Both knew early on what their life mission was. Both visited their brothers because they cared for them. Both were concerned about injustice and acted to help. Both were heroes and rescuers. Both functioned as mediators to reconcile people. Both were misunderstood and rejected as leaders at first. Moses sat by a well and then rescued women. Jesus sat by a well and then rescued a woman from spiritual death. John 4 Moses' wife was a Gentile believer. Jesus' bride consists of both Jews and Gentiles who believe. Moses had physical children. Jesus had spiritual children. Neither one returned to live in the same place right away, even after the threat to their lives was over, due to the death of the king. Both had their lives spared many times until it came their time to die. The gospel is clearly in this chapter. If it wasn't, there would be no good news here. Continue listening for Exodus chapter 3. May God bless the study of his word.